Stephanie, have you ever seen an episode of Knight Rider? No. Is that where the car talks? Correct. Oh, that's a great show. I do a good kit for another time, but. Just say Michael one time real quick. Michael. Michael, I can't hang a right up here. There are people at that intersection, Michael. <laughs> Michael, you'll only fail up. Your next show will have women in bikinis. Take a right. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by tablet editor-at-large, Liel Leibovitz. Shalom to you. And to you, my good friend. And by tablet deputy editor, Stephanie Butnick. Shalom 2020. That means by 2020. Also, technically, peace 2020. <laughs> our Gentile of the Week is children's book author Peter Cease. And our Jew of the Week is Rabbi Tiferet Berenbaum. A styling week, an awesome week. Chock-a-block full of the kind of of Jew and Jew-adjacent podcasting that will uh, will smooth your entry into what promises to be a better year. All of a sudden, I'm a light radio jock. I'm an FM light. I'm on 100.5 rich FM. That's exactly <laughs> the vibe we need right now. I would say it goes very well with this haircut. <laughs> yeah, it's a 70s feathered rock, yacht rock haircut. Yacht rock definitely is your vibe. It totally is. A student of mine recently wrote me a letter, a paper letter, because I tell students, I'll stay in touch with you if you write me paper mail, which weeds them out pretty fast. <laughs> a couple make the cut, choose to make the cut. And she's, she concluded her letter by saying, if you could go back in time to one year and ahead in time to one year, what would those two years be? And I said, look, honestly, I'd go back in time to 1974. I'd want to see what things were like when I was born. And the music was just awesome. I mean, a horse with no name was riding across the FM dial. Like, why wouldn't I go back to 1974? Of all the splendors in human, in the course of human events you could experience, it's a horse with no name that would it's, lure you right back. It's the band America. It's America's <laughs> greatest hits. Stephanie, how are you this week? And how was your Christmas, or as we call it, the 10th of Tevet? My 10th of Tevet was great. I got a COVID test and then had Chinese food with my in-laws with the door open. <laughs> so everyone really likes to hang out with us. We wear our masks on at all times inside and request other people do too. And then we eat near the door with the door open. So everyone gets very cold. Classy. Um, we are very fun too. Yeah, so definitely invite us over. I will say on Christmas Day, I called my Israeli cousins because I know my younger cousin, I guess, I don't, my dad's cousin is the patriarch of this family. So his daughter and her kids were who I was talking to. So I they could be whatever, right? First cousins once once or twice removed. I don't care. I don't deal with that. I expect other people to correct me with the right names. <laughs> it's uh, mishpocha. It's fine. There are a few things that I feel are so gendered as the ability to quickly do genealogy and like cousin relations in your head. Because in my family, it's like my mom, my grandma, my sister, my wife are all just aces at it. It surprises me whenever any woman, <laughs> I, I know this is so <laughs> sexist, like it surprises me that a woman would be flummoxed by it. It's like- It's funny. I just call them all my cousins from Mutti, my dad's cousin, to Neve even know I'm my first cousins twice removed. They're just all my Israeli cousins. But the point is this of this is that Neve, my older cousin who's like 13, loves the NBA, loves basketball. So I knew on Christmas Day there were like 16 games of basketball you could be watching. And he I had a feeling we're staying up to watch all of them. So I WhatsApp FaceTimed them and we chatted and he apparently stays up all night to watch all the NBA games and like then has just like wakes up for virtual school. But my <laughs> aunt has a I guess she's my, whatever. She's my aunt in context of the cousin. Very confusing. She has the, his schedule, basically, where he's like, here are the nights I'm staying up very late. Here are the days I'll be sleeping in and missing school. And this is just the schedule of the NBA for the week. So his parents have bought in. His parents are supporting him in this. They're like, this is who our son is. We want him to flourish. Well, yeah, I mean, they are up at all hours as well. It's kind of amazing. You can, like, I can FaceTime them at my nighttime and they're pretty much always awake. But I was talking to my cousin Inbal, his mom, and she always has the best TV recommendations. Like when I was there last summer, she was like, it's all about turkey 
Turkish TV. We're all only watching Turkish TV. And I was like, wait, if the Israelis are watching Turkish TV and the Americans are still watching Israeli TV, which is just getting to us, like Turkish TV is next. You're a step behind. Yeah. yeah but so basically she was saying, you know, have you watched this amazing show? It's You Should Have Known with uh, Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant. And I was like, what? And she's like, you should have known. Have you watched You Should Have Known? And I was like, I think it's called The Undoing here. And she was like, oh, yeah, 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 that makes sense. But here it's called You Should Have Known. And it's very funny, to, first of all, to hear an Israeli say you should have known and to say it like they say, like, you should have known. You should have known. But remember, everyone was so mad about the finale of The Undoing, a.k.a. You Should Have Known. And if the title here was only You Should Have Known, everyone would have been okay with the finale. Because as they say, you should have known. <laughs> no spoilers here. <laughs> but there's something so amazing about Israeli titles. It just was like, yeah, of course, you should have known. I have to say, <laughs> Israeli titles are an absolute, they're a genre onto themselves. They're just like wonderful things. But it's funny because she was like, ah, it's called Undoing in America. I had a long conversation with your mother and I think she's very confused. And so I called my mom and I was like, when she was talking about you should have known, she's talking about the undoing. And she's like, <laughs> oh, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, J. Crew, Josh here. Turns out the show called The Undoing in the U.S. and You Should Have Known in Israel was based on a book called You Should Have Known. Oops, they should have known. It all makes sense now. <laughs> she was like, I thought she was talking about a Turkish TV show because my mom actually is watching <laughs> Turkish TV now. <laughs> Interestingly, when her son, your cousin, is talking about the NBA, it's what we actually call the NHL. And you were wondering why he wanted ice skates. <laughs> For example, Stephanie, a certain movie with Zach Galifianakis and Ed Helms about three friends who have an unforgettable weekend. What is this movie called in English? The Hangover. Correct. In Hebrew, it is... <laughs> On the way to the wedding, we stop in Vegas. I mean, that's a much more descriptive title. It's like straightforward. Like, let's not waste any time. It's just, this is what the movie's about. Is there a word in Hebrew for hangover, Liel? I believe the correct, beautiful Hebrew word is chamarmeret, if I'm not mistaken, which is really nice. But I, I'm not sure. I'll have to check. A hangover. Ha hangover. Well, you know, then she started telling me that they were going to have to do a close-up after the holidays. And I was like, what? Close up, but she meant a lockdown. <laughs> I mean, she's a, she has amazing English. She used to be a, a flight attendant. Like she's been all. It's just very funny. I was like, oh, a lockdown. She's like, yeah, yes, lockdown. Close up, you know. But I'm like, a close up actually again makes much more sense. We're gonna close everything up. This reminds me of a friend of mine in college who was American. Her parents were immigrants. She was American, and she was a linguist and a linguistics major. And she had beautiful English and probably beautiful French and the three other languages she knew. But she used to talk about kickbacks. And I could never understand what she was talking about. And I realized she meant flashbacks, like having a flashback to childhood. She'd say having a kickback to childhood. For years, we were all confused. Like, was her was she talking about family corruption? Were people always giving kickbacks to each other? <laughs> had people had to buy their way out of the old country? And then we realized, oh, she just means a flashback. That just, she just got the word wrong. It's funny because kickbacks has such a specific connotation. It's bad. It's like it's bad. It's like Rico esque, right? Like there's <laughs> something not good happening. Well, in in the old country, if you wanted a flashback, you needed a kickback first. You needed a kickback. You pay someone to have your memories back. I have to tell you, I feel very proud. I think I've had a major achievement this holiday season. By the way, are you in a closet, Leo? I am in a closet, Stephanie Budnick. I'm continuing the trend. Welcome. It's where we all belong. Leo's had a breakthrough, or as the Israelis call it, a breakup or a breakdown. Or a kick through. <laughs> or a kick, or a kick up. <laughs> Don't kick through those closet doors, though. So here's what I've managed to do this Sarabatavet holiday season. <laughs> I have managed to not watch... Wonder Woman 84, which is a great achievement because you all know my deep abiding love for Gal Gadot. 
the greatest actress of this and any other era. And yet the reviews were so like spectacularly, uniformly, like world historically horrible. I was like, here's <laughs> what I'm going to do for my favorite actress. I'm going to not watch her movie. <laughs> I'm just going to avoid this smushmortion and it's going to be great. Haven't seen it. I love Gal Gadot. Would love her to come on this show. We stan her. We love her. Everything or whatever words we're using now, we love her. Is it possible that she's not that great in this movie? Like, is it that the movie is not good enough for her or that she oh. as Wonder Woman might not be the compelling actor hero we want her to be? See, Stephanie, in my mind, she's amazing. In my mind, it's a fantastic movie. <laughs> Second to none. It's one of those sequels better than the original. It's The Godfather 2. It's Empire Strikes Back. (laughs) And I shall never know any different. (laughs) Look, I get it. After her Imagine video at the beginning of quarantine, I I can see you're hesitating to take on another one of her projects. But yeah, I haven't watched it yet. I will actually don't have HBO Max. I meant to text my family and see who in it has HBO Max. I see in the chat that Sara Fredman-Ader has HBO Max and watched not just Wonder Woman, but also Valley of Tears, that Yom Kippur war movie that I think also has a different name in Israel because my cousins were trying to tell me to watch it. And I was like, yeah, Valley of Tears. They're like, no. No, on the way to the war, we stop in Syria. (laughs) (laughs) On the way to Yom Kippur, on the way to services. Something funny happened on the way to the... On the way to the Valley of the Tears. (laughs) As long as we're in Israel, I'm going to recommend that we move straight into News of the Jews. News of the Jews. N-O-T-J. News of the Jews. Uh-huh. It's been a slow news week. The whole world catered to our needs and slowed down on the, the Christian calendar. They didn't want to bring us a lot Christmas week, or maybe it's because it was the 10th of Tebet and they just, everyone chilled out. Uh, Donald Trump was busy pardoning people like Charles Kushner, but more interestingly, I would say there's going to be another Israeli election. And I just, I want your most straightforward Associated Press, objective, non-politicized reading of what the hell is going on, Liel Benzion Leibowitz. This is a clown show. It's not a political reading at this point. There's no objective or non-objective. This is just, you know, a political system in free fall. There is half the country for whom the only sole ideological component of voting is, we don't like that guy. That guy needs to go. We like everything this guy does. All of the guy's policies, they're great. We want a different guy who will do the same things as that guy, but not be the guy. Can you get us a guy? And here's the thing, there is no other guy because they've tried five guys and they didn't work as guys. And they also went to the place five guys. <laughs> That's what the guys are doing now. That's what Benny Gantz's opening is. They on. got the Spanish burger with the pickles. That's exactly what they did. The Hamburger Espanol. I haven't stopped thinking about that once this week. <laughs> you know, and, and then there's half the country. It's like, no, the guy's great. We like the guy and we like the things that the guy's done. And you like the things the guy's done. So keep the guy. What's your problem with the guy? So when it's all about the guy, we could play this game as as long as you want. So have they not formed a government since we last talked about, since the third election? They have formed a government. It was built on a throne of lies. It was predicated on, you know, the thinnest of thin air. I thought it was built on rock and roll. (laughs) Yes, that's what they built the city on. But the government was built on a very different entity. You know, again, it is impossible to break down in, in irrational terms because there's nothing rational about it. It was a sort of political marriage of convenience that they kind of excused as being tethered to Corona and fighting Corona. And then two seconds later, like, hold on, but the whole point of me getting elected was hating you. And now all my voters are saying, why am I friendly to you? I voted for you to hate the other guy. And then that thing collapses. 
And so we'll do it the fourth time. You heard it here first. Here's what the results are going to be. They're going to be exactly the same as the first three times. Here's my question. Because this is a nation that's about to go into a close-up or lockdown, like, you imagine you don't want to— tra- I mean, we're in a transition state, right? And that's already complicated things like a coronavirus response because there's just that lag in between, like, you know, there's a sitting duck. I mean, how does this affect the, the very real shutdown that's about to happen? I mean, how, this must really affect people's lives, right? Right. Here's the thing. You have to make, as an Israeli voter, you have to make a very deep, informed decision. Do you hate the guy? Or do you care about literally any other aspect of life? Do you care about, say, peace with the UAE? Do you care about corona? Do you care about anything? Or do you hate the guy? Leal, serious question here. When you talk about Israeli politics, including the way you just presented it, which is like, either you endorse good policies or you're overwhelmed by your own antipathy towards this one person. Oh, no, 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 no. That's, hold on. That's that's not at all what I mean. I would love if there was a different party that said, okay, look, we have policies. We have different policies. They're good policies. Please vote for us for our policies. The other parties, not me, forget me. The other parties are saying the policies, same policies as the guy. Difference here, no guy. So what's happened in that country, this famously cantankerous people known as the Jews in a famously cantankerous political system where basically, according to you, and I'll defer to you on this, there is no dissension on policy. Everyone agrees on all the same policies. Let me put it this way. Between the parties that got, let's say, 75% of the Jewish vote or 80% of the Jewish vote in the last election, you would need like a battery of academics to figure out what Kaholavan wants to do differently than Likud, wants to do differently than Labor, wants to do differently than Yamina, wants to do differently, et cetera, et cetera, than Israel Beiteno. There is no difference between, this is, this is the mind-blowing, infuriating thing. Seems kind of like a big market failure there, right? I Wouldn't there know. be a market for some new policies? I thought this place was to be all about innovation. Can't they start up a new party here? Imagine they had like a McDonald's and then like three different other McDonald's opened up and said, we're also McDonald's, but we don't have a Big Mac. That's the only thing. You could walk into this McDonald's. It's the same McDonald's just without the Big Mac because we don't like the Big Mac. It, it is so stupid and so convoluted and so impossible to understand. Should we run Gal Gadot? I think we should run us. We're going to run for Knesset? Us. <laughs> I think it's the fourth time around. I think, listen, I know some of you are not citizens of the state of Israel. I don't think it matters anymore, to be honest. I think it's time for the unorthodox party. 2021. What do you say? Look, I don't want to come. This just sounds like a lot of drama. And I want 2021 to be free from drama. And I don't want to get involved in the Knesset. I don't know, Stephanie. I have you down as Minister of Defense. Okay. Which is, I think, a very, very good portfolio for you. Mark, I have you down as Foreign Minister. No, I want to be Minister of Culture. I want to watch the Turkish TV. Really? You don't want to wear your bow tie and, like, travel to, like, Azerbaijan to, like, sign new peace treaties? Doesn't France have a Minister of Fashion or something? I want that. <laughs> Do you I want, want to be the Minister? I want to, like, <laughs> in the desert, I want, like, the Guayabera, the sort of desert look with the open-necked collar and maybe I'll have a gold chain with a chai. And then I want a little bow tie when I go on Zoom. What are our policies? I think we need clarity. Our policies are free Turkish television for everyone. Yes. Kosher Friendly's restaurants. Yes, the Israeli government is going to buy all Friendly's restaurants <laughs> around the world and keep them in business forever. That is a very strong policy thing. Kickbacks to Mark. Kickbacks. Yep. All kickbacks to Mark. 
Number two, the chief rabbinate is declaring that no bagel should be titled a bagel unless it is a plain bagel, an onion bagel, or a poppy bagel, or in some cases, sesame bagel. That's in my portfolio. That's culture. I want to say, like, let's make weddings easier for people. I want real change. I don't want just an Orthodox rabbinate. Let's redo it. Well, the Tourism Bureau of Cyprus is going to give you a kickback right where it counts. Because- we definitely talk about the rabbinate. Uh, we appoint Gal Gadot, Prime Minister for Life, as soon as we win this election. I think I think it's fun. And Sarah Netanyahu has to pay for her own laundry. Yeah. Let, let's not take it too far, Mark. We don't. We will only be using the laundry facilities in Correct. the United States. Okay, I'm on, I'm on board with this. All right. We're announcing right now. Our Jew of the Week is Rabbi Tiferet Berenbaum. She worked at Temple Beth Zion in Brookline, Massachusetts. I met her a couple years ago when I did an event at Hebrew College, of which she is a proud alumna. In rabbinic school, she spent her summers in the Berkshires, living, growing, and teaching at the Isabella Friedman Jewish Retreat Center. And now she's living, growing, and teaching in Greater Boston. We're so happy to have her. Rabbi Tiferet, thanks for being our Jew of the Week. Ah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I was reading an interview that you did with Jewish Boston, and one of the things you said, you had your first experience of God at age 11. Tell us, like, what was that experience? So this is like the most 11-year-old story, although I guess 11-year-olds are different these days, but whatever. It was 11-year-old in the 90s. So I had my group of friends, and Charlene, one of my friends, was hooking up with another one of my classmates, Derek. At 11? At 11. I think they maybe like, maybe they kissed. Maybe they held hands. Like hooking up did not, it didn't mean what it means now. Okay. So (laughs) Thank God. And so like, I'm an only child. My mom was my best friend. So I would just tell my mother everything. So she was like, how was school today, honey? And I was like, mom, Charlene was hooking up with Derek. And my mom was like, what? oh my gosh, I'm going to tell her mom. And I was like, oh no. Like if it got out that like I was telling my mother everything and people couldn't trust me, like my middle school life would be over basically. So I got to school. I like ran into the coat closet and I fell on my knees and I just started praying. And I was like, oh God, please don't let this come out. This will literally be the end of my life. And if this doesn't come out, I promise I'll be a good person forever. I promise, I promise, God. So I walked out of the coat closet, went about my day as usual, totally freaking out and fretting inside. Two o'clock dismissal came. I grabbed my mom and ran away from the building. And like this sort of continued. She would like walk me to school and I ran down the hill and was like, bye mom. Just trying my hardest to keep her away from school and away from telling Charlene's mom. Eventually she forgot. And I was like, wow, prayer works. <laughs> and it, it never came out. People moved on with their lives. And I was like, that's amazing. So then I started like praying for other things. <laughs> like, God, let me walk by this boy on the way home from school. You know, like, and of course these things happened, right? Because like, there were like 10 of us in the school. But like, from my perspective, I was praying for things and my prayers were being answered. So then I got really curious about God and religion and how all this works. Oh, I forgot to say I was in Catholic school at the time. So, you know, there was a lot of God and religion already in there. 
So yeah, like that just conversation really started when I was 11. And I did say like, God, I'll be a good person forever if you don't, if you make this happen. So I was like, oh, well, I guess I have to keep up my end of the bargain. That's so interesting because my hunch is that now your experience of prayer is not quite so transactional. Like, God, if you do this for me, I'll do this. Like, that's not, that's not a grown-up religiosity, right? Like at some point, yeah. you realize that it's not like that, where you just sort of like register your prayer requests and like, guess what? God delivers, you know? Like Postmates or Uber or something. <laughs> <laughs> was that a hard realization when you realized that prayer wasn't always going to be just like, you send up a trial balloon and God delivers for you? I feel like my prayers have always been answered. And I have explored what happens when things don't happen immediately, right? Because like at this point in my life, I'm not asking for like God as a fairy or God as a genie anymore, but there are certainly things that I do ask for. And I realize like if these things aren't happening in my life, it's certainly for a reason, right? Like why am I getting a no? <laughs> like well, maybe there's something in here that I don't need. One thing I have discovered that's been amazing to discover is that most of the no's are not actually knows. They're not yet. One of my favorite stories of not yet is, so I was like boy crazy when I was in high school. I had crushes on all the guys and I was just like the super awkward kid that like nobody talked to. And there was this one guy that was just like so in love with. I would cry like, why doesn't he like me? And my mom was like, oh my God, like you're in ninth grade. Like This does not matter. <laughs> And um, I was like, oh, I really want him to like me. I really want him to like me. You know, I was getting a no. So I was like, whatever. Fast forward to when I was like 25, 26, we came back into each other's lives. And like, he was like totally trying to engage in a relationship with me. And I was like, oh, that was a not yet. <laughs> but like, I was like, I had moved on with my life and like, he was playing the too long game. I know, right? And so I was just like, oh, that's interesting. Life doesn't work like this. It doesn't operate on my schedule. So how did you realize you wanted to be a rabbi? So when I chose to identify as Jewish, when I was like 19, there was so much learning to do. I mean, part of the process of becoming Jewish is regular classes. And when those classes ended, I felt like, wait, now what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to continue my Jewish learning? So, you know, I just kept taking on projects to continue my Jewish learning. I picked up a second major in Jewish studies because I was in college. And my rabbi at the time said, there are two things that I had to go do. I had to go and take my Jewish passion and teach Hebrew school. And I had to go take my Jewish passion and go be a rabbi to share that with others. And I thought, you know, that's really great. And I still look at my rabbinate like this. Like there are people who have grown up Jewish, have you know, like experienced Judaism their whole lives, and they've never been exposed to like the amazingness of our tradition and like the flexibility of our tradition. So I've taken it on myself to hold that and present it. So Rabbi Tiferet, you are at Temple Beth Zion where you are not just the rabbi, but you're also running the Hebrew school. So I'm wondering how... Those two, you know, it's not every rabbi who can run a Hebrew school, right? Like that that educational component is not necessarily something we expect of rabbis. And I'm wondering how those two pieces fit together for you. Is constant education part of how your rabbinate works? I mean, how do you sort of see those two sort of rabbinical identities? At TBZ, I'm, thank God, not the senior rabbi. <laughs> so I can focus solely on education. And in my first two pulpits, I was the rabbi and the ed director. And that's really hard because being an, a rabbi, an education director, and a teacher. Those are three separate jobs. And, you know, something has to get the short shrift. And it's usually the teaching or the education aspect because the pastoral
rural needs come first and the needs of the whole community come first. So I am so blessed to be at TBZ where I do just focus on education, adult education, children and youth education. I've always wanted an education rabbinate because at our essence, that's what rabbis do, right? We educate people and we, you know, help them grow their Jewish souls, help them grow Jewish identities. But that work does get lost on like the, you know, now go lead Shabbos services aspect of being a rabbi. So at TBZ, it's all education all the time. And it's just been a real blessing to get to shape what that looks like and what the learners get to engage with both the adults and the students and build a journey as opposed to just we're going to just do this one off things. But it's really a holistic version from the little tots that we do at Wonder Minion all the way up through our aging and community group. Wonder Minion is great. I know. I want to be part of a Wonder Minion. So you talked about adult education. You know, something that we found is that a lot of our listeners, wherever they are on their journey to or within Judaism, they want to know more, right? They listen to us and they sort of, you know, we are imperfect messengers, but we try to bring on people who can offer them new insight in their own Jewish identity. So What are, in your mind, like the key things for adult Jews, right, who want to be more connected, maybe don't see themselves going to synagogue, don't live near a synagogue, don't know how to find a synagogue, don't feel comfortable in a synagogue? Like, what are some sort of easy steps that Jewish adults or Jewish adults to be, or or I guess that's Jewish to be adults, can sort of take on their journeys? Well, you know, the first thing I like to say in general is that Rabbi Akiva who's like one of the greats in our Talmudic tradition. He didn't start his Jewish journey until he was 40 years old. And like, there's so many things that we know Rabbi Akiva for saying, and he didn't start. So there, it's never too late. Like, that's the first thing. It's never too late. And there's nothing that you should know before stepping into a synagogue. It's like, just own where you are in your journey and in the process and keep learning from there. One of the blessings, if we can call it this, one of the more positive aspects of this pandemic is that now we are building a real treasure trove of accessible materials online through audio, through video. And I just encourage people to tap into that. There's so much on YouTube, so much that we can all use to learn, to deepen our learning, and we can do it on our own time. So, you know, it might be a little bit intimidating. It's probably incredibly intimidating to walk into a new place where you don't know anyone, but we don't have to do that right now. Like you just click and you're a part of it and you can learn and you can come in somewhere and you can turn off your camera for the first few times. You have a lot of control in the interaction. So I just want to invite by everyone who's thinking, nah, I don't know, maybe I can't. Come on in. Judaism is open. We're waiting for you. We're ready to share it. No cover charge. Well, I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> we will take only your foreskin. What, um, what was your lowest point as a rabbi? Oh, God. My lowest point as a rabbi was this moment of community slander. And like, I have prided myself my whole life on mingling with everyone and trying to be everyone's friend and reaching out to different people, different communities, and really bridging understanding. And there was a person in one of my communities who felt slighted by me, and they went on a campaign against me and their family members were involved. And, you know, I had something that was published nationally and a family member wrote something slanderous on it. And I just, I couldn't understand like what I had done that was so terrible to this person that they, and, you know, everyone in their circle felt the need to attack me in that way. 
And that hurt my heart because it was like the first time in my adult life that I knew of someone who didn't like me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm not doing things for people to like me per se, but when something's that large and that public, it's like, how do you, I wasn't sure how to defend myself and I wasn't even sure what my role was in communicating. So that was just really very challenging. I like disappeared on my family for two weeks. I had to go off and be alone to process how stressful that was. The Rabbinate can be so lonely because you move to a new town often and the people you meet are your congregants and they can't be your confidants as well, right? Like it's it's a different relationship. I mean, I remember once driving in a car, I was giving a talk in upstate New York and the rabbi who picked me up was new to town and we were talking about what happened in his last town. And he had shared a little bit of slight gossip with somebody he felt close to on the board of his synagogue. Pretty harmless stuff, but that person had shared it and it had grown with every telling and he had essentially like destroyed his and his family's life and had to leave town. Ugh. He wasn't attacking anyone's soul. He was being a little bit catty and he had like destroyed his life. The public nature of a role is so unforgiving. Yeah. It's one of the reasons why I am so blessed to be at home back in Boston, because I do have my community of people that I grew up with who knew me, you know, before I was a rabbi, who are completely outside of the Jewish community, places where I can go when I need to talk and be fully accepted as just a person. And it was so lonely in my other places because for exactly the reasons you say, I had, I lived in Milwaukee and I had like one friend that I didn't know in a rabbinic context that I could go to on a Saturday night and say, can we just chill? You know, (laughs) like after Havdalah, of course. Of course. Well, yeah, because as a rabbi, I mean, you're a human, but you're also a rabbi. So when someone slanders you, you have to, I imagine there are dual impulses. One is just like the human impulse to want to like yell and scream and do whatever you want to do. And then there's the rabbi side of you, which is sort of like you're always answering to a higher authority in all your interactions. That must sort of be very stressful. Yeah. And the higher authority is usually the board. Of course. I mean, yeah. (laughs) And like, that is even a challenge as well. It's true. It's so true. And like figuring out like, what's that balance? That was just like another reason why I'm so blessed to be back at TBZ and to like be able to take my rabbinate in a different direction that is less public and still as effective. I'm curious, you are a little unusual as a rabbi in three ways, as a Jew by choice and a woman and a black woman. I'd be curious ways in which each of them is a gift to the rabbinate. Oh, yeah. Being a Jew by choice or, you know, someone who's like awakened my, because I, I feel like we're all Jews by choice now. Amen. It's so easy to like not be Jewish, 100%. right? Like so easy, but like, because my family of origin is not Jewish and because I'm coming to this with like totally fresh eyes. They're Baptist. Is that right? Did I read they were yeah. Southern Baptist or Baptists? Yeah. yeah. I just have such a, a thrill about it. I feel like, wow. And like, you know, I chose Judaism a long time ago. I've, I've been identifying as Jewish almost longer than I was not identifying as Jewish, you know? Right. But I still am like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. So I just have this joy about our tradition that I, I bring as a, someone who did not grow up Jewish. And I like want to bring that to other people, like especially my students. Being a woman is a blessing because women just think differently. Our brains operate differently or there we don't have a lot of that thought in our traditional texts like the Talmud. It's like it's male brain all the time. 
That could be the verb. It's it's men male braining each other all the time. <laughs> My husband and I joke about this because there's a there's a lot of discord because we're you know male and female brains. And I, I just think that's such a blessing now that like not just me but like other women rabbis and women scholars are bringing a different perspective and a different way and a different life experience to so much Torah and tradition. It's just it's just amazing. And what was the last? Oh yes, being a black woman. That's fascinating, especially in this moment. I wasn't wondering like what my how my blackness played into the rabbinate, but in June, when race was thrust to the forefront of American consciousness, I was like, oh, this, it's for this. It's like, just like Mordechai said, right? It's for this moment. For such a time as this, yeah. Yes, I, I am a rabbi. It's great to be able to have a pulpit and a presence for the sake of other Jews of color, right? Like, not every Black Jewish person wants to sit and answer questions about their experience because they just want to exist. But I feel like I'm like, I will answer your questions. Like, I, that's my job. I will do that. <laughs> you don't have to bother your, you know, local Jew of color. Let them be. So yeah, yeah, I'm really grateful for all those three things. Oh, and I'm a mother. That's also huge. And I think like that has completely changed how I relate to God and Judaism and everything. So you've talked about, you know, when it comes to Jews of color, this idea, you know, the difference between a congregation saying like, we're open, we're inclusive, and actually sort of like, doing the work to make make it so. I mean, I think the prime example that you raised in this article is really something eye-opening to people is like this idea of like police presence in synagogues. And I think it's something that a lot of white Jews, Ashkenazi Jews take for granted, right? You just you go to a synagogue and a police car is outside and, you know, that's because we're Jewish. Can you explain to people who sort of maybe haven't really grappled with this one? Like, it feels like the thing, right? Because it's like it's sitting outside the front door when you walk in. Can you sort of explain how that might not be always so comforting to all Jews. It's becoming more apparent, right, that that Black people in this country and people of color, Indigenous people as well, have a different relationship with the police. And we have seen recently how many Black people's lives have been taken at the hands of police violence. And so these communities just have different relationship with the police. And in seeing the police, don't think, oh, great, now I'll definitely be safe. It's like almost the opposite. There's like a little panic that rises up in some Black people when they encounter the police. So to think about going to shul, you know, I've heard stories of this. People who are going to synagogue, either with their families as Black Jews, and then are stopped at the door and questioned as if you don't belong here. It's disheartening, right? And it's someone saying you don't belong. It's happened to my friend in New York. It's happened. It happens around our country. What's the way we sort of work around that, right? If Jewish institutions do need, or there is a sense that we do need security, I mean, like, are there actual ways around this besides getting rid of the police? Absolutely. It comes with conversations, you know, and communities figuring out what their values are. You know, at TBZ, we didn't have police per se. We have a security company and that that is is something we brought up with the security company. So that's something that's known. And I think in New Jersey or was it in Milwaukee, some other congregations have had community safety squads where people from the neighborhood are a part of keeping the building safe while people are in it or people congregants themselves protecting themselves. But that also comes down to what are our values as an institution and making sure that that is explicit. Like we can't harass people of color just because they look differently and like figuring out how do I tell 
who could be a threat and who's probably not a threat. And I know that our federations are equipping synagogues with resources for that and trainings for that as well. Rabbi Tiferet, do you have a favorite teaching? Favorite Parsha from Torah, favorite Sugiya from Talmud? Like, what do you what do you love to teach? Oh, gosh, I have so many. Um, what's coming to my the front of my mind is this text by Rabbi Yosef Chikatilia. And uh, my dear, dear Chavruta, Rabbi Sarah Bracha Gershini, and I have been studying this 13th century mystical text on the Sfirot. And it's like, it's before the Sfirot as we know them of Kabbalah, we're called the Sfirot. So this particular part comes from what we'd call Gevura. And it talks about how the soul of everything that exists here on this plane, before it came to incarnate on this plane, went before the Holy Blessed One. And the Holy Blessed One said, okay, soul, When you get down there, you're going to be this tall and you're going to weigh this much and you'll have this many arms and and this is what you'll do for work and here's what your family's going to look like and here's some service that you're going to go through and like just gives you like an entire overview of what you're signing up for basically. And then the soul says, yes, I will take that on with a joyous heart and I accept it. And then they go into the world. So I love that teaching because when I'm running into like difficulties in life, and I think this goes back to like my prayer life, I take comfort in the fact that, well, I signed up for this. I knew that this hardship or this whatever was going to happen, like I was presented with it. So there must be some resolution on the other side that was acceptable to me then. So I just have to wait for it and keep working through this. So I love that. And I think that's also like, I'm not like, saying that for someone else, like we also have in our tradition, like you can't tell someone else Gamzu Latova. You can't tell someone else this too is for the best when they're like really in the mucky muck <laughs> right, of it. Right. Right. Because like that's, <laughs> but for, for me, as I'm thinking about how I deal with the struggles of my own life, I find that comforting. And what about, you mentioned earlier that we are in the midst of developing a lot of resources to go with the resources we already had online. And the three of us probably all agree that ideally we can like hug it out at the, Judaism is is done in person. But in this moment when we can't do it in person, do you want to send people to a particular website or a particular YouTube channel? Or is like, where, where can we get some good at home distanced learning? Oh, at TBZ, totally. Um, <laughs> I mean, like, absolutely at TBZ. I'm so proud of our show. We've been growing during the pandemic, which is awesome. But that's because it's also like we do community very well. And you guys have been putting stuff online? We've been putting stuff online. Our doors are open. Our Zooms are open. (laughs) You can come and join us. We have Shabbat Naria, which is just fantastic. And it's a really good, we do some good Judaism there. And that's tbz.org. tbzbrookline.org. tbzbrookline.org. Got it. Also, like My Jewish Learning is doing some great stuff as well. Great teaching, great learning. It's a fantastic resource. Oh, the Institute for Jewish spirituality as well for people who are looking for mindfulness and daily meditation. Like there's just so much. I have to say, I have grown more accepting and tolerant of, for lack, I think the precise, you know, technical term is hippy dippy Judaism. One of the key moments for me of saying like, actually I have ways of growing in all tradition. Like every mode of Judaism has something for me, even if it's not my home. I was at TBZ. This was when Sid and I were engaged. And so it was probably 2003 or four, and I was living in Jamaica Plain. And I remember Reb Moshe like told everyone to come together and like be closer to each other as we sang. Oh, it was 4th of July. And then he had everyone sing God Bless America, which is actually in the back of a Sador that you use. I, I can't remember which Sador it was. You know, we did like Adon Alam or whatever. And then he was like, and now we're gonna do God Bless America. 
And I remember just tearing up. I remember it was just such a special, like, you know, something about singing and I'm not a good singer and something about saying we should be physically closer together. Like, make sure that you're in someone else's space when you do this. It was a very interesting moment for me at, at your shul before you were ever there. But No, I was there in 2003. Oh, were you? Yeah, no, I grew up in Brookline. I've been going to TBZ for ages. It's really a homecoming. It's a blessing. Oh, so before you were ever the rabbi there, you it was one of your shuls where you davened. Mm-hmm. Oh. oh, that's amazing. That's like being faculty with people who used to be your teacher. That's, yeah, that's it's like, true. <laughs> do you get to use a different bathroom now? Like the, there's the like congregant bathroom and the rabbi bathroom. <laughs> I, know, I just went and poked my head in somewhere I had never been before the other day. I was like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> rabbi T. Ferenbaum, thank you so much for being our Jew of the Week. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thanks. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show.
And now time for some pod biz. We have live shows, virtual of course, but they are exciting nonetheless. We'll be at Beth Sholem Congregation in Elkins Park, Pennsylvania for a live show Monday, January 11th at 6 p.m. with extra special guests, Jamie and Brian Stelter. Jamie Stelter is a host on New York One and Brian Stelter is the host of CNN's Reliable Sources, my parents' single favorite show. Tickets are free. You can register at bit.ly slash UO Beth Shalom. That's U-O-B-E-T-H-S-H-O-L-O-M. And on Thursday, January 14th, we'll be at the Temple Emanuel Stryker Center discussing our book, The Newish Jewish Encyclopedia. That's at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That'll be the three of us, and we'll be talking about our book, and it's going to be a lot of fun. You can go to stryker.nyc for more info. That's it for Podbiz. Mailbox, got a letter in the mailbox, got a letter in the mailbox, mailbox. And now, friends, to the mailbox. I don't think we have stirred quite a controversy <laughs> like this since we talked parking or, or maybe even tinfoil. Tasty cakes are all our listeners want to talk about. Aaron Roller chimes into the Facebook group saying, I've been part of this group for a while now. By the way, I should point out he chimed in at 6.40 a.m. on December 25th. He was up early. But we don't know where he is. Yeah, we don't know where where (laughs) he is, but he's up early on the 10th of Tevet. I've been part of this group for a while. And though I've commented here or there, I don't think I've ever posted. However, after this most recent episode, I feel compelled to speak up. Tasty cakes are a pale imitation of Drake's cakes. I moved from Brooklyn to Southern New Jersey. And while so many things are better in the burbs, every time I walk into a Wawa, nice Philly reference, by the way, Wawa, very big in the Philadelphia area, and see the tasty cakes, those pretenders to the convenience store pastry throne mocking me from their display, I burn with resentment. Their products are smaller than Drake's and sweeter in a sickly way. With all due respect to Mark, the kind of thing you say before you're about to disrespect Mark, by the way, (laughs) if you really want to treat your colleagues next time, leave the crimpets and snowballs and get them some yodels, coffee cakes, or ring dings. Okay, Aaron, first of all, mad props to you for writing. We're grateful for your participation. Longtime commenter, first-time poster. First-time poster. The divinity in me honors the divinity in you. That said, you're obviously a sociopath. That's insane. (laughs) I mean, Drake's cakes, first of all, what is more goyish? I mean, might as well, it's the wonder bread of of snack cakes. No, but we heard last week that it actually wasn't, that Drake's cakes were the Jewish ones. I, I disagree. I, I Look, who hosts the podcast? Me or Aaron Roller? I mean, I'm just telling you how it is. That's what I'm paid to do. Get him riled up enough and he might. Ooh. I'm paid to tell you how who's, it is. Who's the pastry pope? Me or Aaron Roller? Drake's cakes? Here's, look, here's, can we agree that Little Debbie is at one far end of the like junky yes. American goyisha like spectrum? Like Little Devorah, get out of here. Little Debbie is not welcome in shul. That, on that, we agree. It's the Chazarai Sophie Portnoy will not let Alexander eat, right? Because it'll give him stomach troubles. Little Debbie. The question is, how close are you to Little Debbie? Drake's are basically the right next to the Little Debbies. I, I just, I don't even see your point. I totally disagree. First of all, I love Drake's cakes. I, you know what? I I disagree too. Ring things and the odors are both great. And tasty cakes are geographically specific. So everyone in the country probably has had a Drake's cakes. I didn't say they're ubiquitous. But I'm just saying that that's really, that's privileging your own experience. (laughs) (laughs) You're saying it's my tri-state privilege is what you're saying? I don't know, but I will say that Aaron Roller later on in the comments section, first of all, everyone was like, yeah, glad you got out on this one. Like, great first post. (laughs) He basically writes it and was like, Okay, I was a little bit snippy. I was in the middle of fasting for the 10th of 10th, so I may have been snippier than usual. 
Oh my God. Anyway, I will say that I have I have received zero Tasty Cakes and zero Drake's Cakes this whole time. I don't know how, who I have to give my address to on this podcast. I'm sorry. I'm going to buy you. I'm going to buy you some Tasty Cakes. I might get some Drake's Cakes for myself. Aaron, in post-COVID times, we're going to get together. We're going to do some shots of Slivovitz and wolf it down with some cakes. Let's do it like a taste test. As the largest member of the host committee, here's what I think we should do. I have no real particular like emotional memories associated with either with snack cakes. Drake or tasty cakes or any of these things. I think next time we're together, I think producer Josh Cross should present to me in sliced form. So it's impossible to visually recognize a ring. Mark, you choose. What are we comparing here? A ring ding to a... To a butterscotch crimpet. To a tasty cake butterscotch crimpet with a K. Let me producer Lee cut in here and say, Mark and I will talk offline so as not to tease any of this. But we'll take care of this. We'll have, we'll have a taste test as soon as you and I can get together. I want to add the one thing that nobody seemed to argue with, just to get Mark's back here, is that butterscotch crimpets are the king of all, and that is correct, and no one has even uttered a sound to argue with that. It's my Jersey boy. Wait, what are crembos? I always think I thought crembos was like a Hebrew snack. Crembos is a Hebrew snack. Crembo is above everything. Crembo is the superior. Isn't crembo like the Hebrew improvement on a Malamar? Excuse me, you. <laughs> I said improvement. It's not an improvement on a Malamar. <laughs> Malamar is a pale attempt to imitate our genius. What about Malamars? Are Malamars Jewish? I grew up with a lot of Malamars. The second anyone says macaroon, I'm resigning from this podcast. Disgusting. <laughs> Absolutely disgusting. Could we all agree on that? Wait, what do you mean? What about the Jewish macaroons? No, no, no. I don't care. Anything you put coconut in, you've destroyed. Like, you might as well put asparagus in a cookie. I, there you have it. Disgusting. Correct. Disgusting. What are we supposed to do for Passover? Don't eat dessert for eight days. All right. Now, look. Now, look. We will. Aaron, thank you for, for kindling this flame. I want to move on in the mailbox because so much deep yet trivial stuff this week. Simultaneously deep and trivial. A gentleman by the name of Matt Batten tweeted at us. This is B-A-T-T-E-N. And he writes with a U in favorite, one of my favorite podcasts. So we don't know where this guy is. Probably in like Australia or Canada or something. One of my favorite podcasts is unorthodox underscore pod. It's hilarious, but I totally don't get any of the Jewish cultural references. I laugh along and nod like I get it though. (laughs) So, first of all, that's um, that's troubling. He's in Cardiff, by the way. So if you want to make a Welsh joke. Thank you. As I enjoy my rare bit, I laugh along as if I understand. <laughs> as I hunt for pheasants and listen to Unorthodox, I feel very... <laughs> as I read Kingsley Amos. So, Matt, we had producer Josh Cross uh, track you down in Cardiff in Wales and get in touch with you. And we're so pleased to have you on the line. I'm here with Matt Batten, the guy who sent that tweet. Welcome. So you're a Cardiff-based, unorthodox listener. How long have you been listening? So I've been listening for probably since the beginning of lockdown. I can't remember how I found it, but um, a few people were tweeting about something. Given the the work that I do, I work for um, a church organization in Wales. Bizarrely, unorthodox came up. And uh, I started listening and found it absolutely hilarious. But I couldn't honestly tell you why, because I've got no idea what's going on. What kind of things confuse you? Oh, oh, so the last episode where you were talking about being something like two weeks late for Hanukkah recipes. And then you started talking about all the different foods. And I was like, I have no idea, but I am laughing along. Like, I totally get the references here. I really understand what they're talking about. But it's it's just genuinely funny. But I'm now only ever going to refer to Hanukkah as Chanukah. Because after that Smokey Robinson thing, which I think might be the funniest thing I have ever, ever heard. Now I need to know, I need to now make some latkes. Is it latkes? 
you, you could say it that way. My, my British grandmother would have said latke. Um, oh, most yeah. of us say latke, but that's latke. only because it's winning out. What did you say, latke? Latke. Rhymes with vodka. Oh, okay. All oh, right. Now, now you're talking. So there's a couple of recipes or food that you mentioned. I'm like, okay, that sounds good. I was wondering if you would like to ask me a Gentile listener of the week question off the top of your head. <laughs> I was just going to say Gentile of the week is like my favorite thing ever when I listen to it. I'm like, so um, I've been to Israel, right? And the one thing that it seems to be is like every single Jewish person has been to Masada. So is that a truth? Is that what you, if you're Jewish, you have to go to Masada? Is that like you have to make a pilgrimage there? Is it a pilgrimage or a an aliyah. Well, going to Israel and sort of emigrating there is aliyah. Oh, yeah, yeah. The first time I went to Israel and I was an adult, did we go to Masada? Yeah, it's it's one of those things. It's like going to New York and not going to the Statue of Liberty. It's like going to Paris and not going to Versailles. Now, you you could you could not go because it's outside of town, but it's like, yeah, you kind of go. But Masada, I mean, the thing is, it's that it's such a deep sort of cultural story, regardless of your faith level. I think the thing is the experience of going there and going up there and knowing that ostensibly you've got a direct line of tradition to people who were there. And then you can see across the chasm that where the Roman camps were. And you're like, all right, well, I've heard this story and now I kind of really get it. Yeah, it's, totally. it, it yeah, I mean, so there's a thing to it. Plus, you know, yeah. you get to go to the Dead Sea on the way there or the way back because it's an excuse to make a trip. We stayed near um, Ein Gedi, I think it was, we stayed. Mm -hmm. And um, for some reason, walked up Snake Path. We thought it'd be really cool to walk up Snake Path, which is like one of the walking routes up to Masada. So you don't know. I thought that was like the thing to do when you're at Masada. You have to like take in the whole thing that is in the Dorling Kindersley tour book. I'm sure there are a lot of people who do that. I drove to the bottom. I took the cable car up. <laughs> really? I feel like I've done more of Masada now. I feel like yeah, I'm, you, I'm you, totally You probably have. Last question. Uh -huh. Gareth Bale, greatest Welsh football player of all time or greatest Welsh football player of all time? Hey, honestly, football, I, you've just completely gone over my head. How do you know so much about Wales? This is bizarre. Like, literally, nobody seems to know about Wales apart from Doctor Who. Well, there's that, and there's all the recent cop shows. There's like, um, what's the Hinterland? I think was one. And this is amazing. I had no idea British TV was oh, was good. so popular. So Hinterland, yeah, Hinterland is brilliant. So Hinterland might be uh, the Welsh Fowder, okay. surely, because everyone is talking about Fowder. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anything else you'd want to ask us about the show or making it or? Any other Gentile of the Week questiony thing? No, and I'm going to kick myself when I come <laughs> off here now and go downstairs and tell my other half. I've just been talking to an Orthodox because we were in bed this morning listening to it. And he was like, what's this show? And I was like, oh, it's an Orthodox. Everyone's listening to it. Nice. And he was like, and he was like, yeah. Um, Not everyone's you, tweeting about it, though. This is like a, a late Christmas present, you know. Um, you're welcome. Merry it's Christmas. like a Christmas miracle. Yeah, Merry yeah. Nadolic Clawen, as we say in Wales. Nadolic Clawen? Clawen. Clawen. Oh, very good. Yeah. Well, you could a, literally, if you could Cardiff, you would pass as Welsh. Uh, I, I, I doubt it. But <laughs> <laughs> you've mentioned Gareth Bale and Hinterland. Everyone would be like, he speaks Welsh. Clearly, he's from Wales. <laughs> All right, Matt in Cardiff, you are now officially. Unorthodox's man in Wales. Moving along in the mailbox, can I read you something that somebody wrote to me at my Gmail account? We would love that. A gentleman named Brian wrote to me, said, Dr. Oppenheimer, well, thank you. Do you accept that? 
I thought your whole thing is no honorary, no honorary doctorate. Uh, look, I feel like the Joe Biden thing has been adjudicated in the court of public opinion. Very few people found my old writing on it, but um, I'm against doctor not because I think the education doctor or this doctor or this doctor are wrong doctors. I believe in the democratic Mr. and Ms. because everyone can use it. And nobody made that point in this whole thing. Mark, can I just say really quick? Associate producer Robert Scaramuccia. My dad sent me a Breitbart article that quoted you. Yes, I know. Only Breitbart. Okay. <laughs> I know, I know only Breitbart found that old piece. See who loves you, baby. We just learned a lot about everyone just now. So that said, from Brian, I will accept the doctor. Thank you. And he writes to me, I hope this finds you well. Just to cut to the chase, are you by any chance related to the great Lillian Oppenheimer of New York, who was instrumental in bringing origami to the United States? <laughs> Mark, the answer has to be yes. It has to be yes. <laughs> He writes, she was my great aunt and I've been trying to get in touch with her immediate family, her sons, to inform them about my mother's passing. Oh, Brian, I'm sorry. Brian, first of all, so sorry for your loss. Um, and he links to Lillian Oppenheimer's Wikipedia page and it says, Lillian Rose Vorhaus Kruskal Oppenheimer 1898 to 1992 was an American origami pioneer. She popularized origami in the West starting in the 1950s, dot, 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 dot. Anyway, alas, I believe the answer is no, I'm not related to the great origami pioneer Lillian Oppenheimer. But man, how much would I like to be? Like, how freaking rad would it be to be related? Mark, there is there is no way you're not related to origami pioneer Lillian Oppenheimer. The, the universe can simply not contain a situation in which the origami pioneer Oppenheimer is not your great, great aunt. Wait, but do you know this? She co-wrote several popular books on origami with Shari Lewis, of Lamb Chop fan. Of Lamb Chop? <laughs> what? Who is this person? And please find out how you're related to her. So here's the thing. I emailed AJ Jacobs, great genealogist and wit and several time Jew of the week and said, would you go into your deep, deep, deep databases and find out if I'm related to Lillian Oppenheimer? Because sweet Lord above, to be related to origami pioneer Lillian Oppenheimer would just be out of this world. It would be smashing. It'd be Yofi. It would be, ugh. okay, two more. Dear best podcast ever. Yay. We'll accept. I've been thinking about the diplopia of Rocky Mountain High. That is the two Mark Oppenheimers. My brother introduced me to this site, http colon slash slash howmanyofme.com. It uses census data to check out how many people in the United States have the same name as you. So unfortunately would exclude your South African guest. It's of course fun to search for your friends and I won't get everyone in the post-production team, but as for the hosts, according to this site, there are 13 Mark Oppenheimers, one or fewer Stephanie Butnicks. One or fewer? What does that mean? <laughs> I just found this. What do you know that we don't know? Howmanyofme.com. <laughs> That's like Back to the Future, the other, other time travel movies where you start disappearing because of splits in the time. Your, right. your hand is now invisible. Also, one or fewer Podzilla Butnicks <laughs> and one or fewer Liel Leibowitzes. Thanks for being awesome, for creating a space, closet, or otherwise, for talking about important and tough subjects with admirable thoughtfulness, and for being so darn funny. You've been such a bright spot in this dark year. All my best, Giovanna. I appreciate this resource because this is sort of like the thing that tells you if you have any, like, money in New York State. You know, like, you plug your name in and they're like, oh, you had, like, a, a bank or whatever. Like, someone gave you a savings bond for your bar mitzvah and it here's $12. Um, this is my second most favorite website now. I will say that there are fewer than 124 people in the U.S. with the last name Butnick, apparently. Wow. So, yeah. I'll find all of them. Where's the Liebevai Ghostrunk? Sarah is also a one or fewer. Robert is a two or fewer. And somehow I landed on, there are exactly two of me. 
<laughs> I, I want to find the other one. You have to find it. I searched Sarah Ader and it said one or fewer. Then I searched Sarah Fredman and it says there's exactly one. And I know that's a lie because I know another Sarah Fredman. So this is Bupkis. <laughs> she dodged the census taker because of her criminal issues. I think it's probably me because I'm legally not Sarah Fredman, but. Legally yeah. <laughs> not Sarah Fredman is a very good title for a, for a heist book. I'm going to look up Benjamin Cohen. There are 145 people in the U.S. named Benjamin Cohen. <laughs> only 145? Wait, only 145? We've heard from 23 of them on right. this podcast. <laughs> I feel like we then we know all of them. I'm married to half of them. Wait, this is funny. Famous people with the last name Cohen. Larry Cohen, Rob Cohen, Steve Cohen. I don't know who Larry Cohen is or Rob Cohen. I know six Steve Cohens. <laughs> You guys, I'm sorry. I'm typing really loud. I'm typing everyone I know's name in here. This is so fun. We've lost Stephanie. She's she's down this wormhole. Which dating app is it that bings you if you're within 20 yards of the person you want to sleep with? What they need to do is merge howmanyofme.com in with Tinder, Grindr, whatever, so that if you happen to be on the same subway as someone with your name, you guys oh, can, that's so can have a totally insipid conversation. Like, oh my God, your name is Josh Cross? Me too. Oh my God, how's it been for you? Technically, you could technically go fuck yourself. <laughs> Literally. Liel, because you made that joke, you get to read the last letter, Liel. So guys, this mail really touched me. It was so sweet and wonderful. A real Asarabatevet present under the Asarabatevet tree. Because last week, we asked anyone if there was anyone out there who celebrated both, celebrated maybe the wrong word here, who observed both Asarabatevet, the fast commemorating King Nebuchadnezzar's second siege of the first temple, and the other day celebrated this past Friday, known to some as Christmas. And here is a letter for the ages. Dear Unorthodox, I wanted to drop you a note after listening to this week's episode. I'm fasting for Asar Abed while joining my family's virtual Christmas. They're Catholic and I'm a conservative Jew. Shabbat dinner tonight will conclude with Christmas cookies. Shabbat shalom. Bruria bat Avraham Avinu v'sarayimenu. Bruria. Chag Sameach to you. What a note. <laughs> I love this so much because I initially was like, oh, maybe it's an interfaith family where there's two, but this is actually a permutation we were not expecting, which is sort of a Jewish person with Catholic family. I mean, that was really amazing. We knew it was possible, by the way. Like, there had to be someone doing this. And Beria, Mazel Tov. Hope you enjoyed those cookies. Mazel Tov to you. Chag Sameach, the Mazel Tov, all of that. Drake's cakes or tasty cakes? <laughs> you get to decide. By the way, Beria should be our, like, tiebreaker for everything. Like, our one person who gets to make the calls. 100%, as they say. By the way, the next edition of the NJE, the Jewish, Jewish Encyclopedia, obviously has to have something on snack cakes. I don't think we had anything on snack cakes in the last one. Well, you know, we need, we need a spread, a two-page spread of important controversies, all ripped from the headlines of unorthodox. Saran wrap versus foil, backing in versus pulling in by the front of the car, Drake's case versus Tasty Cakes. Our guest today is the great Peter Cease. He's one of my absolute favorite authors. You have seen his work, even if you don't know it, if you've ever taken a subway in New York, the most beautiful piece of art you've stared at was done by Peter Cease. He's an author of several incredible books. Most recently, the impossibly touching Nikki and Vera, a quiet hero of the Holocaust and the children he rescued. Peter, thank you so much for being our guest. 
Oh, thank you for having me. You are a famous writer, illustrator of children's books. You have won every possible medal and accolade and honor. And here you are in 2009 and you visit a museum in Prague. And all of a sudden, there's something there that you see that, you know, you never knew about. What was it? So it's not just me visiting the museum. I grew up in Prague. I knew the museum. I didn't pay much attention to the museum. But here I am in 2009 visiting Prague with my American-born son, who I'm trying to show my old school, the old streets I play in, just everything I can think of. And we get to the National Museum and we walk in and see this crowd of people. And completely by coincidence, we're watching them and they're, they're cutting this giant cake with the train on it with the steam engine made of chocolate. So it got his attention. He was 15. It got my attention because I had no idea what was going on. And we asked and we found out this is the celebration of uh, birthday of Sir Nicholas Vinton. And in the same time, on this whole trip with my son, we talked about different things as fathers and sons do. And we talk about who is the hero in life? Who, who are the people who do things which are heroic, which we know about, but then we also were getting to, I think, I don't know if we got to it only in the National Museum, we found out about Nicholas Vinton. I I knew a little bit about him, but again, as a grown-up and as a busy illustrator, didn't pay maybe too much attention, but once we were in the museum, we started to look into the whole story and found out that Nicholas Vinton in 1939 saved 669 children. That's the official sort of title. And we found out that he saved these children, taking care of eight trains which were dispatched from Prague with kids to England just before the Second World War started. And that way he saved all these children. However, he once he was done with it and the war broke out, he never talked about it. He got married after the war, he had children, but only 50 years later, his wife, by coincidence, found his scrapbook and brought all this to the attention of the world. And that also, as you detail in the book, and just thinking about this, I feel like crying because in the one of the very last images of the book, you see all these people who were saved and you so beautifully draw inside them in small, little, sepia-toned colors, the little children that they once were when Sir Winton saved them. He was surprised, right? In a television show? Yeah, it was like maybe some people say this is like the best moment on television ever because he's in the, in the audience in television show in England, which is very popular, but he thinks he's in this show for completely different reasons. He's also building some retirement age homes in England. And he's surrounded by these older people with gray hair and he doesn't have a clue. And and the host of the show starts to read his story, his story of his life, how he saved his children, which he doesn't know. It's public knowledge. And all of a sudden she asks if there is anybody in this room who somehow connected to these trains or who knows about these children, please stand up. And all these people around Nicholas Vinton stand up and he, you can tell he's a reserved older man in that time and he is deeply touched. And it's deeply touching because he last time seen them or if he ever seen them, they were little children of different ages who came to England, came to America, came to Israel. Some of them went back to Prague and just became grown up people. Very touching. And so you start this book in a classic Peter Sisian type of way. <laughs> I'm describing this, I hope, aptly. It's, it's a sort of a globe in the center of which is a baby surrounded by light. And all around the globe are 
instruments of progress. We see a radio, we see a light bulb, we see a car, we see an airplane, a zeppelin, a ship. And you write, Nikki was born in 1909 into a century full of promise, which is really one of the most breathtakingly depressing sentences because, you know, we, we obviously know what happened. And then you go on and you tell the story of how he grew up and found himself in Europe, in Prague, rather, for vacation, and then got involved with these children. So when you decided at the museum or shortly thereafter to tell the story of Nikki and Vera, one of the children he had saved, and we'll get to her in a second, how do you begin to get into characters? And I'm particularly interested in this in light of the question of, these were people, as you said, and I think it was a very poignant way to begin the story, who were born thinking life was going to be very different and then had to kind of improvise as, as the world was turning dark. How do you get into that mindset? Well, I should say, first of all, I started, I did a number of books about different people, different heroes, if it was Charles Darwin or Galileo Galileo. And I always started with this baby picture because I, in my mind, it's like every starts as a baby and you never know what, what will happen. And here it was almost like saying mea culpa because he starts as a baby, but then he will be not hero, not public hero until age 80. And for me, from the stories of my grandparents, from the books I read, I find like really 20th century being full of promise in the very beginning because of the technology, because of almost naivety of people. They will cross the oceans, they will communicate on telegraph and telephone, they will fly in the blimps, everything like it's going to be a wonderful Jill Verne's kind of century. And so this is the, a little bit of the absurdity because we unfortunately know what happened to the 20th century. So he's born with this promise. He's born into also family, which is well to do. And he goes to the school, which was very interesting, was a very new school in Stowe, where the principal really believed in very progressive education and believed in the fact that if he speaks to children about helping other people, what they can do for each other, how to be part of society, which, which, and I think it somehow stayed in, installed in Nicholas Winter his whole life. Then, of course, there's Vera, the young Czech girl who is one of the 669 children that Nicholas Winton helps save. And there's this image here. She arrives in London and all the train station and everything around is in this kind of, uh, watermark fady blue except for her she's a silhouette onto which you basically drew childhood memories this is again the notion of trying to imagine this horrendous moment of, of a small girl arriving by herself into a new city leaving behind all her family everything that she's ever known how do you connect emotionally to a moment like that well this was a sort of decision that I knew about story of Nicholas Winton, which was almost impossible to somehow make as a book, make as a film. There was a film made about him, but the problem with him that he was so good, so positive, and he didn't speak about what he did so long that how could I put it ever in the pictures? The years he doesn't speak. And then by coincidence, I discovered a book by Vera Gissing called The Pearls of Childhood. And this is the girl who describes her life as being little, innocent, beautiful girl living in the small town outside of Prague, having a very kind family. So the whole child who is like chasing butterflies and climbing trees, she says in her book, I didn't meet any anybody being rude to me till age nine. That's very touching that she's having really this idyllic childhood, what she mentions in her book. Her family is Jewish, but it's not at all important in that setup because it's a small town. Everybody's got some religion. What was fascinating for me as a person from what used to be Czechoslovakia and now it's Czech Republic, that everybody was so excited about this new country because Czechoslovakia was formed in 1918 that 
everybody became very much nationalistic, believing in the president, believing in... So she she doesn't really pay any attention. She goes on the weekend sometimes to her grandparents in Prague and they visit synagogue, but it's not it's nothing which would be somehow making her life different. And And that made me think about it because behind the mountains, the Germans, the Second World War, the Nazis, it's all starting to brewing. But the people in the village do not see it as a major... They see it as something dangerous, but it's not close. So she, in her innocent way, keeps on living her life until her mother, who has this suspicion of things, goes shopping to Prague, which is the nearest big city. And she speaks to people and they say, why don't you sign up your daughter for this transport to go to England? It's uh, safer for the time being. But it's also very interesting in her book that lots of people in that time say, no, this will go away. This is just something which is happening in Germany. This will not last long. So there were like all lots of these aspects of situation in Prague. And she, mother puts her on the train and she goes to England. She sees it as a child from completely innocent point of view. So lots of these children on the train were thinking they're going to have an adventure, they're going to the country which has got a king, they go to the country which has got different children's stories. So uh, some of them were crying, some of them were three years old, some of them were 15 years old. So there were all these different kids. She had two cousins who were supposed to follow her on the next train, which never made it to England. So her sort of angle of seeing things was, for me, counterpoint to Nicholas Winton, who could see clearly, even he wasn't from there, he was just visiting there is terrible time coming. Let's hope we can save as many children as possible. And uh, he saved 669. So we're speaking now in the midst of global pandemic, in the midst of political turmoil in many countries around the world, not just this one, in the midst of a period where I think a lot of people feel like many things that they have taken for granted about the stability, security, and well-being of the world are being called into, into deep question. Is this a more timely book than you'd ever intended it to be? If it is, it wasn't intended that way. I started to work on it way before this terrible time. I did lots of reading of the books from my country, from Europe, about Holocaust. I've seen lots of films. I was looking at that period, not really thinking how, for example, timely this book might be to parents who are trying to send their children to Greek islands or across the border of United States. And I think as the advocate of these children who ended up in England in the beginning of Second World War, it's just amazing to see the list of what happened to these children. Not because some of them became famous scientists and famous film directors and, and politicians who are still fighting for children who immigrants, but because most of these children who we know dedicated and gave their life to help other people. That, that's pretty amazing that they are nurses, that they are people who work for public causes. I'm, I'm very impressed by that. So if this book is somehow fitting in this time, it would be great, but I didn't think about it at all. There's not much, surprisingly, considering the subject matter, there's not much terror in this book. There's an illustration of the German tanks moving in, and there's some very evocative, beautiful kind of illustrations that show things darkening. But I wonder, writing a book about the Holocaust for kids, if you kind of had to sit and grapple and think, you know, just how much darkness do I want to show? Just how much of a sense of real threat do I want to portray? That's exactly what I put in, in the beginning, so much other material. And there was one of the thoughts was the darkness or more than darkness of the Holocaust. Another thing was when Vera comes back from the war, 
back to her home country of Czechoslovakia. There was a whole attitude towards people who were coming from concentration camps and towards Jewish people after the war, which again is very disturbing, which I could have made part of it, which she mentions in her book. I decided to keep it as it is because it was a book about courage of Nicholas Winton, what he did. And it was this darkness, darkness of the little child, but the little child doesn't know it's so dark. The little child has a hope it will be okay. The darkest moments are when she loses all contact with the family back home because for some time when she comes to England, they exchange letters. The family is able to send presents Then in 1943, that means four years into her ordeal, she hears on, she's already adolescent and she hears on BBC that there are camps where probably Jewish people are being exterminated. So that's for her like first sort of, because there's no exchange of information as we have now. And then of course, it's that whole terrible reality. But I thought now it's so easy for anybody who go through this story to find additional links to everything in her life, who were the presidents of the Czechoslovakia, what happened in Munich or what happened in Kristallnacht in detail, as well what she is living through while she doesn't know what she's living through. It's the same with, I could get into detail that her mother, who was very strong and wonderful, goes through Auschwitz to Bergen-Belsen, she still experiences liberation of Bergen-Belsen. And Vera actually gets cable from her sister that the mother is okay, but mother dies two days later of typhoid. And it was so heartbreaking because she's in the school full of children who most of them lost parents and they know already they have no family in the world. And then when she gets this cable that her mother is alive, everybody says, you're so lucky. And she's so happy for two days to find out that in the end she she lost her mother to typhoid. And these were all, then I would need a book of 50 pages, 60 pages. And I was hoping people can sort of connect these dots. And it's more dark and horrific in the things I didn't say because they can be found and experienced. Peter Cease, we are deeply grateful to you for being our guest for this wonderful book, which is a necessary, now more than ever, reminder of what the courage of just one person could do to change the entire world. Thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you so much. You are a wonderful host. Thank you. Nikki and Vera, A Quiet Hero of the Holocaust and the Children He Rescued by Peter Cease, will be in stores January 26th. Mazel tovs? Uh, Liel, do you have a mazel tov? As a former scout myself, I spent most of my childhood in the Israeli scouts. I wish to extend a hearty mazel tov to Gabby Stein in Los Angeles, the first ever Orthodox Jewish female Eagle Scout. Hallelujah. That is wonderful. What an achievement. Congratulations. Gabby, as we say in the Hebrew Scouts, chizki ve'imtzi. Stephanie. Speaking of strong and courageous, I have a mazel tov to all of us for making it through. We're so close to the end of 2020. When this airs, it'll be New Year's Eve, Gentile New Year's Eve, Gregor's New Year's Eve. Um, and I'm very excited to start 2021 with all of you, my favorite people. Amen. Inshallah. I'd like to turn my mazel tov over to a, a great letter. We got this letter in the mailbox. My good Jewish friends. I have to say first that I love Latkes. Liel is wrong, which breaks my heart because I loved his book about Stan Lee. Okay, so he's got Stan Lee. He's wrong on Latkes. This podcast is absolutely great. I was introduced to it by my intro to Judaism professor, Malka Simkovich. 
She's awesome. So I'd like to give her a shout out. Keep the awesome content coming. Peace, Robert Tito Serrano. Well, Tito, we would like to give a mazel tov to Malka Simkovich, who apparently has the wisdom and the grace and the courage and the decency to introduce her students to the podcast Unorthodox. So to you, Professor Simkovich, a mazel tov. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send us your thoughts. Please, please do. Unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869 and leave a short, peppy, and witty message. Subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. Go to bit.ly slash unorthoshirt to find our shirts, mugs, and onesies, and other swag. Follow us on Instagram at unorthodoxpodcast and on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarah Fredman Ader. Our associate producer is Robert Scarrow. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger and our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. The Punk Rock Hatikva was by former Jew of the Week Bram Presser's band Yidcore. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton and our Shotnez checker this week is PJ Newton. We come to you again from the scattered locations of Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. Da 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 da